0: Welcome to the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology podcast, known as the ASPOcast. This six-part series, The Road to Clinician Well-Being, will focus on various issues related to clinician wellness.
1: Hello to the ASPO community. This is Deborah Zabaladel, moderating today's podcast with Dr. Dan Murphy from Stanford, Welcome, Dr. Murphy. So nice to have you here.
0: Thank you, Deborah. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to our audience today.
1: Dr. Murphy has a couple of unique and interesting roles. He's first and foremost a pediatric cardiologist, but in the context of today's conversation, we'll probably speak more about his role as a chair of well-being for the director's council for the WellMD Center at the Stanford School of Medicine. Can you tell us what goes on at the WellMD Center and how it benefits the physician community?
0: WellMD Center through the School of Medicine was actually set up by all of Stanford Medicine, which is the School of Medicine and all of our affiliated hospitals. And it's under the guidance of a chief wellness officer, perhaps the most preeminent scholar in this field, Dr. Tate Shanafelt. And the organization really addresses the well-being and professional fulfillment of faculty physicians, and PhDs through the School of Medicine. But we have very strong affiliation with our wellness programs for the trainees, the fellows and residents, our medical students, and also directly the hospital staffs of our hospitals. So the wellness and fulfillment activities are broad throughout Stanford Medicine. WellMD is specifically focused on research and development and improvement around the areas of faculty well-being.
1: Great, thank you. I'm wondering if you can tell us about some of the findings from some of the surveys you've conducted.
0: The academic work started perhaps a decade ago and started with surveys and started identifying drivers of burnout and then drivers of fulfillment for physicians. As we understand those drivers, it's extended into investigating what interventions are useful in improving fulfillment and well-being and mitigating burnout for physicians. Those drivers are broad and can include leadership behaviors, efficiency of practice, personal resilience, and self-compassion. So there are myriad factors that contribute to physician well-being, factors which mitigate the stress that produces burnout through medical practice. And we and others around the country are trying to identify those factors and then develop countermeasures that can mitigate those to improve well-being and fulfillment for physicians who are practicing.
1: So for physicians that are experiencing burnout, are there some things that your group has uncovered? Are there some elements that individuals can seek that will counterbalance that some way in terms of hitting it harder on the fulfillment and well-being side?
0: It's a great question, and I would say that historically most organizations have gravitated towards enhancing personal resilience, and it's important, and I can speak to that, but I think the more important aspects that we at Stanford emphasize are the interrelation between a culture of wellness the efficiency of our practice, meaning doing the jobs we're trained to do, and then our own personal resilience. And it's the interplay of those factors that I think has a much greater impact on physician well being than one factor alone. So when we talk about a culture of wellness, we're frequently talking about leadership and organizational behaviors that promote well being for physicians. And when we talk about efficiency of practice, we're talking about removing those impediments, those pebbles and the stones, those things that get in our way every day trying to do our job that grind down on people. And you can see that culture creates the opportunity to improve practice and improving practice makes people more resilient. So the model works by the interplay between those factors.
1: So it sounds like if the leaders of the organization, if the administration of the organization has a culture of being in tune with physician wellness and physician burnout, that means that efficiency of practice is going to be better and personal resilience builds. Can it in any way work the other way? If they feel like they don't have control over those other elements, how do they use their personal resiliency then to help mitigate a more frustrating culture or one in which there doesn't seem to be a focus on the physician as a whole person?
0: That's a great question, Deborah. Some physicians find themselves in unsupportive cultures with leaders who don't demonstrate appropriate leader behaviors. They may not feel that they can exert enough influence to change that culture, and they may be at significant risk for burnout because of that. There's a danger in being in or feeling like we're victims, feeling that we're underappreciated and powerless. My own strategy has been to create a supportive culture with my own micro environment, my sphere of influence, and at the same time, attempt to build my own personal resilience, recognizing that that's essential to manage the difficulties that we face every day. The most powerful evidence-based strategy for building personal resilience is cultivation of mindfulness, and self-compassion. It doesn't address the reality of the unsupportive culture, but it can mitigate the effects while the individual decides, how do you address those underlying issues?
1: Very interesting. We've heard for a long time about the culture of trainees. And for most of the people listening to this podcast, they will have been through that experience themselves. The sleepless nights, the long hours, the catching catnaps wherever you could, how has that changed over time and how does one sort of break that cycle if it starts early in their medical career?
0: I would say that in general, work hours within reasonable limits are not a major contributor to burnout. An unsupportive environment is a strong contributor to burnout. And frankly, doing meaningful work that's appreciated by other people really really softens the effect of long hours. And Much of that comes down to leadership. If we are appreciated and recognized for what we do, it makes that easier. If what we're doing fits with our own personal mission, with why we're physicians in the first place, that also makes this easier to deal with. So for the faculty, having a leader who exhibits those behaviors, who appreciates us, who helps us with our career, who acknowledges our value directly improves well-being and decreases burnout I think for trainees to have their work valued to have their mission in life appreciated and valued um, and to have them be of the decision-making process of how do we improve our practice for ourselves and our patients that's not rocket science and I don't think it's that difficult it doesn't require lots of money it doesn't mm-hmm. need infrastructures and quite frankly, there's plenty of evidence that if what you're doing during the course of the day is meaningful, even 20% of what you're doing during the day is meaningful. And you're aware of that, back to the mindfulness. So I'm aware that during the day, 20% of what I did today was extremely valuable for me, for my patients, brought me energy. The Rest of the time really doesn't punish us. The rest of the time is jury duty and having a leadership and a peer support that, that acknowledges that, is really the answer to the question. Not reduce hours or change the way that work is done, but respect from your peers and your supervisors. Meaningful recognition and appreciation. Those don't cost anything and they pay mm-hmm.
1: huge expense. So when you talk about a supportive work environment versus an unsupportive work environment, can you Call out a couple of examples. What does a supportive work environment look like and how does that help the physician?
0: I think a supportive work environment is one in which each person is valued for the work that they're doing, whether it's from their administrative partners or their leaders or their peers and appreciated and recognized for the value they bring to that role. An unsupported work environment is one in which there's no respect for what you're doing. So, if I'm told by the compliance officer that I have to put an additional statement at the end of an electrocardiogram that I just signed, that I looked at this electrocardiogram and approve it, even though I already signed it, that message to me is that we don't trust you. Physicians don't have to look very far to see those signs in their day to day practice that indicate that someone either doesn't trust them, doesn't value their time. There was a healthcare system in Hawaii which launched a program called Getting Rid of Stupid Stuff. They had nurses and doctors using the electronic health record nominate things that they were doing that were really stupid and wasteful and insulting. And they came up with hundreds and hundreds of submissions, the vast majority of which they fixed right away. That was a culture that was supportive. Whereas before that you might say the culture was unsupported because all of that stuff was in there. But once it was recognized that the experts doing the job were the ones who needed to fix the system, the system got fixed. And just being involved in that project, even for things that they couldn't change, the explanation for why we have to leave it this way in and of itself was empowering for people who had raised their hands and said, what about this? I think it's like other things. If you listen to the conversations When you look at the evidence, it's not hard to determine whether people are really being supported or not. And they know it deep down. We all know it when we're in that situation.
1: What are you seeing happen then in health systems and group practices across the country? Are you seeing more of an interest in this area? Are you seeing that leaders are paying attention and are looking for tools and ways to assess what the cultural wellness is and how they can improve it?
0: Well, the answer is obviously yes. The ACGME and other organizations have mandated wellness training for trainees. I'm not sure we've quite got it right yet, but they recognize the importance. I think that the levels of burnout were appalling and got the attention of healthcare leaders. There's research now to show that there's a direct return on investment in professional fulfillment and well-being for physicians. The reason is that Burnout results in worse patient outcomes, decreased patient satisfaction, and excessive costs. Just the cost to replace burned out physicians who leave an organization in and of itself will pay for programs to improve fulfillment and reduce burnout. Senior healthcare leaders recognize that it's in their best interest and the best interest of their organizations and their patients to attend to this issue. Big help moving forward because Then it doesn't look like this is something we're doing for self-indulgent doctors, which we're not, by the way. It looks like something that we're doing for everybody. We're doing for the patients. We're doing for the staff. We're doing for the clinicians. And we're doing for the organization as a whole. I think Stanford may have had the first chief wellness officer in the country. We have a course now for training chief wellness officers, and there are now dozens across the country in major healthcare organizations. Now, that's a start. But it isn't the chief wellness officer who's going to directly impact the people listening to this podcast. Division chief, it's their department chair, it's their unit leader that's going to have the biggest impact on them going forward. The organization can pay attention to this, and they are, but the effects have to be felt at the local level where we
1: do the work. So the chief wellness officer is setting up the infrastructure and helping to train people and help them understand how the importance of this, but then it's up to the physician leaders, et cetera, to really carry the water and make it happen.
0: Yeah, I really, I like the term spheres of influence, Deborah. I'm responsible for myself and I'm to some extent responsible for the people in my unit, whether it's my clinic or my echo lab or wherever I work. I'm not responsible for the entire Healthcare organization or the national healthcare organization. It's not my job to fix the electronic health record that comes out of Wisconsin. But having said that, our chief wellness officer has a seat at the table with the dean and the CEO, and they have seats at the table with Congress and CMS and the EPIC leadership. So if we work within our spheres of influence, we can have a big impact at all of those levels. But for the physician like myself, it's really about what happens where I do the work in my workplace, with my colleagues, my teams, and what happens within my faculty division or my group practice with my leadership? You know, does our group, do I have any autonomy? Do we have a say in how we write our schedules, how we deploy our people? Has anybody asked me, what is it in the course of the day brings you joy? And how can we do more of that? One day I asked, Five of my colleagues in the ECHO lab, think back to the last day you were at work. What did you really love? What made you just vibrate with energy and felt good all day long? And after they thought about it, all five of them came back with a different answer. For some, it was teaching. For some, it was going to the operating room, working with the surgeons. For some, it was counseling patients or expectant mothers. And I thought, well, what a great opportunity because we don't all have to do the exact same job about if we enhance those areas that you love and enhance the areas that somebody else loves and balance our schedule that way and appreciate each other for how passionate we are about those aspects of our life every day and learn from each other. If you ask physicians that question about the last clinical day, what resonated? What made you feel great? Once they think about it and get past the things that they hated that day, (laughs) they can recognize that. It's just, do you recognize it in the moment? Do you relish it? Are you aware of it? And can you do things with your boss's help, with your colleague's help to enhance that, get to that 20% of the day? It's a powerful exercise.
1: And even being aware that you're in that zone of fulfillment is part of the mindfulness piece of things, right?
0: You're exactly right. That's the key you're not aware of it, it doesn't have as profound an impact on you because it just goes by with the day with everything else. Having said that, there are practices. We're back in the personal resilience sphere. There are practices that can make you more resilient. If at the end of the day, you write down three good things that happened today, there's strong evidence that that's as powerful as cognitive behavioral therapy. Sure. Very powerful. Having said that, back to the day and, the, and the, you're aware of what makes you feel great. Well, it's good to do that as best you can for your own resilience. What about if your colleagues help you enhance that, help you leverage that to do more of it, to be acknowledged as the expert, to be acknowledged as the person who owns this and runs with it? That's where the culture and leadership play into the same thing. That's culture enabling somebody to build their own resilience and their own well-being.
1: How adaptable or receptive do you think physicians are In looking at their own wellness, sometimes it can be that the shoemakers' children have no shoes, right? Where they're so focused externally on their patients and everyone around them. How much of a shift do you think that is for physicians to start looking more inward and really thinking about their own sense of well-being?
0: It's a huge shift, both in terms of the importance and the difficulty. In our surveys at Stanford, the strongest correlate to burnout was lack of self-compassion. We are trained from an early age to sacrifice ourselves. Somehow it's not really in the Hippocratic Oath, but people want to pretend that it is. We are not meant to destroy ourselves for the sake of our patients. And we're not meant to destroy our families for the sake of our patients either. We're really no good to anybody if we're no good to ourselves. It's the oxygen mask thing, right? Self-compassion is not self-indulgence. Self-compassion is not just, well, it's my me time. Well, it might be your me time, and maybe that time is really important, and that's going to make you more effective during the day. It's not meant to say you schedule your me time right in the middle of a key operation that you're supposed to be performing and walk away and say, it's my me time. But self-compassion is one of those awareness things that requires, I think, a little change in neural pathways. And there's plenty of functional MRI evidence of this as a part of mindfulness, This recognizing that I'm a human being, I have needs, I'm imperfect, and that's okay, as opposed to the perfect doctor that never makes any mistakes, who, by the way, has to be the perfect spouse and the perfect parent and the perfect researcher. It's not possible to reconcile all those perfections with the reality of being a human being. People get to medical school by not doing things for themselves. Do it to check the box. Do it to get the A. Do it to not make a mistake. And that sets us up early on, that lack of self-compassion, that what seems like sacrifice, but it's really not. It's perverse. It's not appropriate self-sacrifice because it leads to detrimental outcomes. I think that acknowledging our own value, we sometimes call this self-valuation at Stanford. Your own value as a clinician, as a physician, and your own limitations as a human being, That balance is critically important. You can be trained in that, and I will tell you, it feels like a shift in your mind. I hear conversations differently from my colleagues. I hear the voice in my head differently when it's giving me a message that isn't particularly welcome or self-compassionate. I can't tell you how often during the day people will apologize to me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm no good at that. There's no reason to have to say that, but it's amazing how often we tell ourselves that and tell each other that. And when we make a mistake, and we all make mistakes, we're humans, do we learn from it? Do we acknowledge that we feel bad about it? And can we move on from that? We really struggle trying to move beyond our mistakes and we all make errors. And those errors can have devastating effects on people. It can lead to depression. they can lead to suicide. We need to be able to process that in a constructive, self-compassionate way. And we know that physicians who can do that are less burned out. And we know that physicians who are less burned out, make fewer errors. So it's this reciprocal cycle where if you're well, you make fewer errors. If you make an error and you're well, you'll rebound from it and stay healthy. Medical error is also a driver of burnout. So how do we take care of each other? What happens in our practice when one of our colleagues makes a mistake? How do we support that person? Fortunately, we're usually more supportive of them than they are of themselves. We tend to be quite compassionate towards everybody else, not quite so much towards ourselves. So if I could do one thing, I would somehow find a way to train physicians in self-compassion and that mindful self-compassion, because I think that would be a game changer for all of us.
1: We are actually doing another podcast in our series on mindfulness and grief. So I think that's going to dovetail well with some of the things you're saying here. One of the things that I was wondering is, And maybe there's not a clear answer to this yet, but is there any kind of a tie that you've made in your research to physician well being and depression?
0: It's a great question. And I think we have the answer, and I think it's in publication right now. I think we are going to be able to show that the surveys can distinguish people who have risk for depression and those who have risk for burnout. And we've shown that the physicians who have mental health issues and risk for depression, overlap with physicians who are burned out, but there seem to be different causes and different substrates. So I probably misspoke. I think that medical errors can have profoundly adverse effects on individual physicians. The effects they have probably depend more on that individual's underlying makeup and their own risk factors specifically than the event itself. Burnout is a work-related response to stress. It's an environmental factor. It's not an intrinsic piece, and it's not all or none. We all go through cycles of degrees of emotional exhaustion in our daily work, and it's encouraging to me because those work-related stresses are addressable. We can remove pebbles from people's shoes so they don't step on them every single day that they walk in the clinic. We can improve leaders' behaviors so that they appreciate their colleagues, so they enable their colleagues to do the work they're trained to do. We can improve collegiality and community and peer support. And all of those, all of those will result in more professional fulfillment, well-being for physicians.
1: That's fantastic. How much of this do you think is going to be generationally driven at all? As we see a culture of new physicians and trainees coming in that are more aware of mindfulness and meditation and self-care. Do you think that some of these things are going to organically somewhat work themselves out while the system is changing? So there'll be sort of a meeting of good practices in the middle somewhere.
0: I like your optimism. Um, I have <laughs> evidence of it yet, but at least we're not blaming the millennials for everything. It's a huge mistake. I think life changes. Work-life balance is a different thing nowadays than it was 30 years ago. In a family with little kids and two employed physicians in the same household, they have stresses that are different than the stresses that I had as a young physician. I hope that the upcoming generations, as we recognize this issue in medical school and pre-medical students, if we address those issues for them, made for mindfulness is a great example, lots of mindfulness programs in grade schools. And I love that because I think it's a great place to start. Those people are going to then go to medical school, we'll wait and see, because that's the other thing. Do we remove that need to be perfect in order to get to your dream? Or do we maintain that so that we self-select people who have deferred their own well-being for the sake of a goal, as lofty as the goal may be, but actually creates that disadvantage for them long-term. So I don't know. I think the answer is we need to work on all of those aspects across the continuum. We know that very senior physicians somehow have figured it out, are less burned out or more fulfilled, which may actually go with the observation that within society, when people get into their 60s, they generally are happier and they have somehow less pressure and sorted things out. But I think that career status and age is only one thing. We know that the stresses of a medical practice adversely affect women more than men. We don't have data on the adverse effects of those stresses on other underrepresented minorities. We don't know yet. We don't know what systemic issues are built into medical practice that make it difficult for people to be fulfilled and maintain their well-being. We need to work with all of those populations. We need to address that. We need to address the issue of women in medicine head on. What are the drivers that are different for women and how do we address those? How do we address them system-wide? How do we address them locally and individually? And I think that the more data we get, the more opportunities we have to actually tailor our responses to those specific realities. And, you know, in this country right now, diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging are front and center. And for me, They're incredibly important part of physician well-being and fulfillment because the things in our society that affect our fellow citizens also affect our physician colleagues as well. And it's up to identify and address those issues, whether they're part of the medical practice, part of the uh, culture of the organization, whatever, that's our role as physician leaders in looking out for our colleagues and ourselves.
1: Thank you, Dr. Murphy. This has been just fascinating. If any of our listeners would like to learn more about the WellMD Center, are some of your um, your studies, et cetera, on the website there that they can easily tap into? Yep. come
0: to the WellMD website.
1: I'm going to go there myself. I think this sounds absolutely fascinating. And I really appreciate your time today and your insights into physician wellness. This has been very helpful, I'm sure, to many out there. And I uh, look forward to connecting with you very soon. Thank you so much.
0: You're welcome. It was a pleasure, Deborah. This has been another installment of ASPOCAST, the road to clinician well being. To get more information on the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology, please visit www.aspo.org. In addition to this podcast series, the most recent webinar on physician wellness can be found on the website under the Knowledge Center tab.